Let's look to our Lord together in prayer. Our Father, we're thanking you now that at this part of our worship service, we quiet our minds and our hearts and our souls before you. And we ask that you would meet us at our point of need. Now that person that came here today and they're struggling. For some it's a struggle, it's a, it's a, a battle, it's a, it's a major tension between that person and you. He or she knows what needs to be done. He or she has been exposed to your word through the years. But for some reason, the knee has not yet bent in your direction. A heart bowed before the sovereign God of the universe. May this be the day. Speak to that heart. Open that mind. Challenge that person, Father put trust in Jesus and him alone for salvation. Others come here today and they've got family matters in their minds. For some, it's a medical issue they've been confronted with. Others have aging issues. Some have, on the opposite end of the spectrum, started off raising children, looking for direction for life. No matter where we're at on that spectrum of time, Father, you're there. Because the past, the present, and the future are all observed simultaneously by the one who stands outside of time and is in control of it. And we praise you for that fact. Now, Father, these minutes together are rich. We've come here not to listen to a pastor speak. We've come here to explore what the eternal word from the sovereign God of the universe has to say about contemporary 2018 living. And that's important. So, Father, every word counts here in your text. Every phrase, every chapter, each book of the Bible. We want to drink deeply from this well. So, Father, once again, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paula was raised in a good Jewish home. And so she was a little bit taken aback by her brother because he was studying for his bar mitzvah. And while he was studying for his bar mitzvah, she writes, I guess he got bored and started restlessly looking at other writings in his Bible. What gripped her attention is that he began to explore the book of Isaiah. And as he did so, he began to weave together promises that he began reading out loud to her of chapter 4, on into chapter 7, onwards to chapter 9, and then into chapter 11, moving towards that climactic chapter 53 of Isaiah, the suffering servant chapter. He was a little surprised, she writes, when he began to study Isaiah. He'd never heard of such a chapter like that 53rd chapter 
that gripped his attention so instantly. But he made his way there through those chapters of 4 and 7 and 9 and 11, reading out loud when our parents were out of the house. And he gave me a Bible. Had me sit down while he closed the door. Very unusual act. Our parents' rule was that none of our doors were to be closed during the day unless someone was ill. I looked down at the chapters that he was pointing to, and finally he, after reading 4, 7, 9, 11, onwards to 53, I remember him then reading out loud these words as if it were yesterday from that 53rd chapter, verse 1, Who would have believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And after I read Isaiah 53, after all the other chapters that I explored, my brother then asked me, almost afraid of what I would answer, who do you think Isaiah is talking about? that moment I knew, but it was a big risk to say what I said. I think it's Jesus. To my surprise, he agreed, but then asked, what do we do about this? a great question. When you explore the various promises of the Older Testament, all of which point towards the one who died on a cross to save us from our sins, it still gets very practical. And what do you do about this? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus, him alone for salvation? We're going to do what what Paula did and what her brother Ron did. We're going to start where they started. They started by looking carefully at the fourth chapter. And in this fourth chapter that Brianna read to us a few moments ago in verses 2 through 6, what you and I are going to find is that there is this rich, rich metaphor of the Messiah. He's described as the branch. We want to look at this, ask ourselves, and why is Jesus described as the branch here? Why eight centuries prior? And how does this relate practically to 2018 living anyways? I still got to get up Monday morning and go to work. I want to draw out three significant applications that I see here in these verses that I think have direct bearing upon the way we go about living our lives. Out of verse 2 is the first one, that as we apply what we'll call now the term, the branch to Jesus Christ. Note with me the descriptions of the branch we know as Jesus Christ. And you're starting off in verse 2. I'll read verse 2, and then we'll begin to break it down phrase by phrase. Where in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, The fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. 
Now, you start off with that phrase, in that day, don't you? And you say, well, Gary, in that day, in what day? Glad you asked. If you begin to think seriously about the way in which the Bible utilizes time, you realize that God is in control of time. He's in control of your time. You're not here in this world by accident. You're here in this world by appointment. Don't confuse accidents and appointments. God now has strategically put a time frame in place. And what he does now is that he will fit together the now and the not yet, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ in this brilliant passage of Scripture, eight centuries prior to Jesus walking the turf of Israel. And he talks about in that day, and now he's already transferred you into that day in which Jesus Christ will eventually return. But in that day, you and I are informed of the first of the major terms that are used by Isaiah to describe the Messiah. He's the branch of the Lord. Now, the Israelites love their land. They might recall in which the grapes of the land were being brought back to them while still in the wilderness. They were overawed by the richness of the soil of the land, but threatened by the inhabitants of the land at that point. And so a few weeks back, I'm standing in the northern section of Israel, and next to me is a physician named Jerry, just met on the tour. Lo and behold, he's a physician or sees an ICU in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And with us is our tour guide, Jacob. And Jacob is there, and he's taken up at certain points with the produce of the land. And he turns to Jerry and Gary, and he says to us, look at that almond tree. And he's pointing to a particular branch. I look at that branch, and I begin to explore the significance of that branch. I know a little bit of Hebrew. I speak broken Hebrew, but I also speak broken English, too, I'm sorry to say. What's interesting to me is that the word for amen is shoked. It carries with the idea to watch or to wake. You know, the almond tree is among the first trees to awaken from the winter sleep dormancy. The Israelites look forward to the point in which that tree is budding, spring is coming. So even in the midst of their wintry days, there's hope. As Isaiah is writing now to the Israelites, they're in desperate need of hope. Maybe you are this morning as well. Maybe you feel helpless or hopeless, and you need to feel as though there's something hopeful about what this passage has to say. Bear in mind that what God is doing sometimes is that he produces budding in the winter of your life. And life can seem so frigid, and life can seem so cold, and life can seem so hard. And what you desperately need to be looking for is the branch and what's budding on the branch. And when you do so, you're also 
articulated, if you will, enraptured with the fact that what the Israelites love to do is that they will take the almond branch and they weave together a menorah out of it. It's to signify the fact that God is present in their midst. God cares for them, even in the winter of life. If it feels like this is the winter of life for you right now, look for the budding of the almond branch. Ponder the significance of it. Think about it. Jerry looks at me, I look at him. He oversees an ICU. The word almond, from the Greek word amygdala, the almond-shaped structures in the brain are known as the amygdala. And we look at one another and we're pondering now and we're thinking about the significance of the menorah, the presence of God among the Jews, the almond tree and the budding of the branch in the midst of the wintry days of life. And so maybe right now what you need to do is you need to take your your thought processes and begin to ponder how that almond tree begins to speak and begins to shape, begins to think the way in which you approach life when it seems like life is helpless and the days are hopeless and life is just one ending experience of winter, as C.S. Lewis might put it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Always winter, never Christmas. But then here comes the budding of the branch. And in that day, the branch of the Lord. Did you notice this? This is of the Lord. What does that mean? The phrase, the branch of the Lord, is a figure of speech. Now, Isaiah, like the Jews, they loved their land, and the branch of the Lord was, metaphorically speaking, describing the Messiah's divinity. He is of the Lord. You and I would know that he's the second member of the Trinity. He is of the Lord, and you will notice that it's capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, because God loves to have a relationship with you, which you can only have through Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. This is not mere religion. This is a relationship, and that is the relational name for the sovereign God. So now something's budding. Something now is being produced in the winter of your life. The branch is being put before you, and this is your day. And you are struck by his divinity, this promised Messiah, being spoken of by Isaiah eight centuries prior. But you see, God's not done speaking through Isaiah at this moment because it goes on to say, this branch of the Lord shall be beautiful, glorious. In the Hebrew, the word beautiful carries with it the idea of beautiful as it relates to character. Beautiful as it relates to the way in which one lives life. More than mere physical appearance. Glorious. Comes from the Hebrew word kavod. You've heard me say it before. It means heavy. And if God is heavy, you don't take God lightly. Now, don't take lightly the budding of the almond branch in the winter of your life. 
God is getting your attention when you would least expect it. It's the winter, not the spring, in which this branch buds. Shall be beautiful and glorious. You weigh this. That's the word there. It's heavy. It's to be weighing down upon you at this very moment, no matter what you're going through, you see. And then it strikes you. What comes next? Because he loves botany. He loves horticulture, evidently. And so Isaiah weaves together a second phrase filled with rich imagery, the fruit of the land. But metaphorically speaking, what he's doing is he's saying that this one, known as the branch, described as the branch, not only has divinity within him, he is of the Lord. There's humanity in him, he is is of the land. So now you've got two natures in one person. What do you do with one who has two natures in one person, fully divine, yet fully human? Which was what my friend Ali was grappling with when I asked him the question, Ali, Ali, why is it in your Quran that you have Jesus, your, your prophet, born of a virgin, And he looks at me and he says, I don't like where you're going with your questions. And I said, well, Ali, in Surah 19, verse 16, reading now from the Quran, and mentioned in the book the Quran, when she withdrew in seclusion from her family to a place facing east, she placed a screen from them, then... We sent to her our Ruah, and he appeared before her in the form of a man in all respects. And she said, Verily, I seek refuge from the most gracious Allah, if you do fear Allah. And the angel said, I am only a messenger from your Lord to announce to you the gift of a righteous son. And she said, how can I have a son when no man has touched me, nor am I unchaste? And he said, so it will be. Your Lord said, that is easy for me, and to appoint him as a sign to mankind and a mercy from us, and it is a matter decreed by Allah. Ali, you believe that your prophet Jesus was born of a virgin. He's got two natures in one person. So why, on the other hand, Ali, do you have, at the last moment on that cross, somebody stepping in and substituting himself for Jesus? So Jesus is taken down, and somebody else dies in Jesus' place. You know, Ali, this whole world has a substitutionary plan. Either people are substituting for God or God is substituting for us. What's your substitution plan, Ali? He said, I don't like where this is going. And I said, Ali, if you are, if you are arguing for a virgin birth on one hand, and he doesn't die on the cross to save you from your sins, you've got an over-engineered product on your hands. What are you supposed to do with two natures in one person? 
except to be the substitute dying in our place for our sins. This is why Bethlehem's got to be connected to Calvary. He said, Gary, I've got to think about these things. I said, it's there in your Quran. Link it now to what is found in the scriptures. Well, now, you've just spotted two natures in one person using figurative speech, branch of the Lord, divinity, fruit of the land, humanity, should be the pride and the honor, the survivors of Israel, you see. So you begin to think this thing through and you realize the significance that's here as it relates to who God is. Because people are looking for God. And what they've got to understand is that God has sent his Messiah and was promised eight centuries prior. I'm standing at the Wailing Wall. Got my yarmulke on. It's Jewish territory now. Jerusalem Post Office reports that it has received countless letters through the years of letters addressed God, care of the Wailing Wall. And so I'm standing there at the Wailing Wall and on that late October day, and I'm pondering the significance of this as I'm looking carefully at the crevices of the wall, and lo and behold, there are two words that are sticking out from one of the crevices. It's written in English. To God. Humanity is in a desperate search. The question is, what is it that they're searching for? Too many people are looking for the blessings of God without looking for the Son of God. Too many people are looking for peace from God without, first of all, experiencing peace with God. But they're looking for something. What fascinates me about that wailing wall is that it's a wailing wall. There's a brokenness there of humanity. They're longing for something, to someone to break into their brokenness and to answer the tough questions and to intervene in their own day, you see, in their own time. And God has his way and his time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. And thus far, what you and I have experienced and examined is we've only made our way through uh, this second verse of this powerful prophecy, is that we're examining the descriptions of the one known as the branch we know as Jesus Christ. And thus far, you've seen his divinity, he's of the Lord, you've seen his humanity, he's of the land, See the richness of his character and his glory, which means he's heavy. You don't take this lightly. And now you're ready to inch further along into verses 3 and 4, aren't you? So join me. We'll continue this tour together. Because second of all, I want you to notice the return of the branch, Jesus Christ. It's found in verse 3 and 4. What Isaiah is doing now at this point is that he's pulling together the first and the second comings of Jesus. Oftentimes, the Old Testament writers don't create a sense of time distance between the first and second comings. They all kind of get joined together. Kind of like that imagery I've occasionally utilized in years past. 
we were after doing some rappelling out in Canada. I was with some friends, and we were on various hilltops, and I had given a series of devotionals, and then doing a 24-hour solo experience. I'm on a hill. I've got my binoculars. I'm watching out over others in the uh, young adult group that I was overseeing at that time. There's one on one hill, and there's another person on a further hill. But when I hold up my binoculars, it looks like they're standing on the same hill. But there was distance between them, one hill to the next. In this verse, it looks like everything's on the same hill time-wise, but there's distance between first and second comings. And so now here's Isaiah at this point, and he is pulling it together for you. The now and the not yet, the first and the second comings of Jesus. And he says, and, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Now God had desired for his people to be a holy people. That's what Exodus 19 is all about, that they were to be a, a holy people, a holy priesthood. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, and life is always on edge in Jerusalem, you see. They're well aware from their Holocaust Museum of the brevity of life, are you? God owns life, and God owns time. We don't own life, we don't own time. But notice the purpose statement of verse 4. When the Lord, but now it drops to lowercase. L and then small O R and D. And notice the twofold work on our hands here shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood stains of Jerusalem. It's referring to things of prior chapters that Isaiah had covered at this point. But he talks about a cleansing, doesn't he? He has talked about a washing. My son, who has been with his wife, Jessica, we've got two daughters-in-law by the name of Jessica. So if you ask me who my favorite daughter-in-law is, my answer is Jessica. Well, Joe was involved in interviewing the past week for residency programs and medicine in Wisconsin. And he left at the house a huge book called the ICU book, Intensive Care Unit. And in the opening section of the book, there's this incredible quote by Hippocrates. I would especially commend the physician who in acute diseases by which the bulk of humankind are cut off conducts the treatment better than others and launches full scale into addressing the matter of going, for lack of a better word, going septic. What fascinates me here is that in chapters 2 and 3, the Jews have gone septic. And they're in the ICU of life. We're in a critical care moment. Somebody, the great physician, is going to have to walk in and do something of significance now to be able to address this issue. That's what verses 3 and 4 are all about. A sort of a cleansing there's got to be wholeness. 
So when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood stains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, and the word cleanse caught my attention because if you don't want to go the medical analogy route, let's go the political route because in recent days, Mark Lamont Hill, following the controversial comments he made about Israel, was informed that he would no longer be under contract with CNN. Spokesperson for CNN confirmed. We've been tracking. He's a professor at Temple University in Philly. Made some controversial comments during a meeting at the United Nations about the whole matter of the Jews as relates to the Palestinian people. And in his remarks at that meeting, Hill said, quote, we must advocate and promote nonviolence, but then he added, here's his caveat, we cannot endorse a narrow politics of respectability that shames Palestinians for resisting, for refusing to do nothing in the face of, and now he, point, with a finger pointed at the political structures of Israel, state violence and ethnic cleansing. Well, believe me, you and I know, if you go to the Holocaust Museum, the Jews know something about ethnic cleansing from World War II. But there is an ultimate cleansing. This is a spiritual cleansing. Cleansing the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst. How? Notice the twofold emphases here upon spirit. By a spirit of judgment, number one. By a spirit of burning, number two. And lo and behold, what you and I do when we begin to explore seriously what God is saying here is that when we look at Isaiah 30, verses 1 and 2, or Isaiah 63, 10 through 14, God is promising the Holy Spirit. He wants people here to already anticipate what Pentecost would have in mind for you and me of the Holy Spirit's coming. And so I read that, and when I read that, right away I started thinking about hockey. I don't know if you start thinking about hockey when you're reading the scriptures I do. And so here's a quote that came at me where late at night after a series of meetings, board meetings and so on, came home and sat down, turned on a hockey game, and uh, there was a commentator, and he was commenting on a play as, as the Buffalo Sabres were, were playing. And he said, he was quoting Wayne Gretzky, a good hockey player plays where the puck is. But a great hockey player plays where the puck is going to be. And I thought about the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ. Because the Christian at cutting edge takes the statements being made on CNN and elsewhere. And it's not only caught up in what is, but understands how all of this relates to what's going to be. And the promise that God has made with regard to this one, Isaiah refers to as the branch we know as Jesus Christ, and upon his return, the outskirts of Jerusalem. And what that entails in terms of getting everybody ready in the meantime, between the now and the not yet of life, where you and I find ourselves. So he says, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, how here's where the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, breaks in the spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, 
And now it's not a political cleansing. It's a spiritual cleansing that comes through the work of God's saving grace. Now, not only have you pulled together the human nature and the divine nature, verse 2, and the first coming and the second coming of the Messiah in verses 3 and 4, now you and I are ready for this third application. It comes out of verses 5 and 6. But thirdly, after looking at the descriptions of the branch in 2, and the return of the branch in 3 and 4, Notice thirdly with me the glory of the branch, that's Jesus Christ, still, verses 5 and 6, and track with me how all this begins to unfold because he still seems to be environmentally conscious, doesn't he? Not only as he looks at the land, but he looks at the sky. He moves from the environmental perspective to the astronomical perspective. Five, and the Lord, now we're back to capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, because he wants to again to push forward for you and me that this is incredibly relational, this God. He doesn't want you to think about how religious you're supposed to be. He wants to think about how and to what degree have you cultivated the quality of your relationship with God based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ on that cross, Bethlehem leading to Calvary. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, the whole site, and over the assemblies, a cloud by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Now, he's talking about what's still to come, isn't he? But what does that remind you of? Well, you know your Older Testament. In my opening years here, after taking the congregation through Genesis, I eventually took them through Exodus on Sunday mornings. And there's this rich imagery in Exodus 13, where in verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, did not depart from before the people. God led them through the wilderness. He didn't lead them away from the wilderness. Maybe you feel like you're in the wilderness right now. God led them through, not away from. And notice that he utilized the cloud. And I thought about that when I came across something from World War II, where a writer tells us, from the island of Guam, one of our mighty bombers took off for a setting in Japan with another deadly cargo, and the sleek B-29 turned, circled above the cloud that covered, it, covered the, the target for half an hour, three-quarters of an hour, 55 minutes, until the gas supply reached the danger point, it seemed as though we were no longer able to do what our intended mission was to do. There was no choice. We headed home. Now the rest of the story. Weeks later, an officer received information from military intelligence that gripped our hearts. Thousands of allied prisoners of war. The biggest concentration of Americans in enemy hands. 
had been moved to that spot a week before the suspended bombing. The officer responded, thank God for that cloud. Notice the imagery here. He dips into the history of Israel, then pulls it out, and then he offers something in terms of perspective going forward to the ultimate day of Christ's return. And so past, present, future, all wedded together here. And then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assembly a cloud by day, smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. See the word canopy? So now what you do is you go to a website and you look up Jewish weddings. And as you look up Jewish weddings, look up the word hupa. Hupa. Because that's the Hebrew word here. That he's using at this point for the word canopy. The bridal canopy is a multifaceted symbol. It's a home. It's a garment. It's a bed covering. Its openness recalls the tent of the biblical Abraham, a paragon of hospitality who kept his tents open on all sides so that visitors would know they were welcome. The tabernacle built in the desert to house the presence of God is described as a bridal canopy. The hoopah is a symbol of God's presence at a wedding in the home being established under the canopy, and it deals with a relational God. And I'm saying, you got it. God wants a relationship with you to such an extent that he even uses the bridal canopy word here from the Hebrew, hupa, for over all the glory there will be this canopy, this relational coming together of oneness, of commitment to one another based upon who Jesus is, the bridegroom to his people, the bride. And then you pull it together in verse 6, and there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, for refuge a shelter from the storm and the rain. So for all the storm victims in our congregation, all these services, what you've got is a refuge that's found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and him alone, your branch. And that's what gripped Paula's attention. She wasn't expecting it as her brother, as he was preparing for his bar mitzvah, reads from Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 onwards through verse 6. Who do you think this is? And then he gets her into chapter 7. And then he gets her into chapter 9. And then he gets her into chapter 11 and then launches forward to Isaiah 53 where it speaks of the one who died on the cross to save us from our sins. But he started with Jesus, the branch. What do we do about this, he asked. As I pondered when I stood in that Christmas tree lot several years back. And as this family was pulling this Christmas tree out towards their car, they were going to be putting it on the top of the car. Lo and behold, there was a piece missing from that tree. A little boy went back to get it. He picked it up. It was a branch. I looked at him and smiled and said, 
you can't forget your branch. And he waved and walked away. This Christmas season, don't forget your branch. Let's stand together. Loving you, praising you, honoring you. You use the richness of figures of speech in this section. You use a combination of botany and astronomy. You pull together first and second comings. You pull together two natures, human and divine, in figurative terms. And you make it practical. Some of us, Father, we're staring at our own experience with the almond tree branch right now. Remind us, Father, it's budding. There's hope even in the frigid days of life. There's more to come. We have a sovereign God who reigns, who sent Jesus to die in our place for our sins. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.